Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, treats me like commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect. He wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're going to lose. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value, all of the aspects it takes to develop, grow, build customer value, which only exists in your customer's mind. Today, I am thrilled to have Tim Hyde from Down Under. Uh, Tim is the founder and chief fixer at Win More Clients. He does, uh, he helps his clients develop and more predictable growth through a, a lot of marketing as well as a lot of sales. Tim, you tell us about it. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Mark. It's absolutely fantastic to be here and looking forward to uh, looking forward to our conversation, actually. So uh, look, to answer your question, what we do is a lot of marketing systems. Um, when I first got into uh, probably not marketing as a whole um, back as a six-year-old, but certainly, you know, as an adult, I had come out of the IT space where we'd done a lot of coding. And when you write code, it sort of gets to a certain point in a, you know, between the line one and line 25,000 or whatever, how many lines of code you got. And then if it gets to a point where it doesn't know what to do next, it breaks and hangs. And, you know, we're all familiar with the, the Microsoft spinning wheel of death where, yeah. you know, your whole computer freezes. And our perception as the end user is that the software is broken. When we apply a very similar concept to a customer journey, um, we see the same thing. Our, our prospects, as they discover who we are and move through our customer journey, get to a point where they don't know what to do next and therefore they they hang and they get that spinning wheel of death. So I mean, our, and our perspective is, oh, they're just the wrong fit or the wrong person and you know, let's leave them behind and we'll continue on with everyone that uh, that does work. But if we want to build a bit of code that serves our purpose, we've got to make sure that our marketing journey is optimized and doesn't have these broken lines of code where our customers or potential customers don't know what to do. Yeah. So in in kind of the way I think is making sure you understand the customer's buying journey and making sure that you're always like either right next to them or you know exactly what they're going to do next and you're you're sitting at the, you're sitting at the next train station about a minute and a half before they get there to say we're well glad we're welcome you're here here's what happens here yeah and we look we really have to make it easier for our customer to take the next step that we want them to take than than they perceive it is than staying where they are and if we can do that it becomes you know we become uh, really good at at marketing and you see you know we we know of companies like this that they, they seem to be just effortlessly making money right but, but all they've done is really architect and engineered their customer journey and made sure that the value of taking that next step talking of value is greater 
than where they are right now. And if we try and make the journey, the step too big, there's no value in that, right? It'd be like walking yeah. up a set of giant steps that are sort of six foot between steps. You just can't really do it. Yeah, uh, when when the hard. yeah, um, when the client is still trying to understand their situation, you can't talk to them about your option versus the competitive option because you've got to be helping them understand their situation. When they're trying to compare options, or when they're trying to generate options. You've got to talk to them about that, not why you're better than the other options. You have to say why you're such a great option and why yeah, you haven't got, make sure that you're fitting their needs. They haven't got to that point yet. Um, yeah. I think if we if we change the dialogue and and you know and and often I think we one of the biggest mistakes I see is we just don't know what we don't know, and so we come at our customer journey, we come at the value conversation with our with our prospects from a position of I mean, potentially ignorance in some way, but we're very blinkered because we're only looking at it from our perspective, right? I can only see it from where I'm sitting, not necessarily see it where from my customers sitting. And we really need to make that sort of leap to suddenly take ourselves out of our own seat, walk around to where our customer is and say, well, how would I, how would my customer perceive what I'm doing? Would they be interested in that? Would they see value in taking the next step in that customer journey? And again, if we make it too big, it'd be like going out to you know your first date and saying, hey, "You're a bit cute. You know, let's have ten kids, and we should call them Mark and Tim and Jeremy and Samantha and you know Lakeisha and Tommy and you know Bob sure. Junior and blah 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 blah." All right? Um, it'd be like, "Well, hang on a second. I haven't. I'm not at that stage yet." That's right. You know, I need to know whether I like you. And if we yeah. try and leap, make that value leap too big we leave people behind and we think, Oh yeah, they're just not interested. Let's get on to the next one. But it's yeah. not that they're not interested. It's just not that they, they just don't perceive the value in taking that next step with us yet because it's. Yeah. Big. The the fallacy of that old uh, saying in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right. Always be closing. Yeah. No. ABC. You, you, you close, you close when the customer is done buying. Yeah. Right. You well, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a good rule in that, right? That as much as we love selling, right? No one likes to be sold to. People love to buy, but they don't like to be sold to. And it's a, we need to keep that in mind from, again, from a perception, because I'm going to notice you talk a lot about yeah. markets. It's just about the perception of value in your customer's mind in, what, in terms of what it is you do. Yeah. Um, one saying that I use quite a lot, that, you know, a bottle of water, which I you know, have here on my, on my desk, um, is, is just a bottle of water for most people, but to a, a man dying of thirst in the desert, it's, it's priceless. Yeah. Uh, that, that same bottle of water, but to everyone else, it's just a bottle of water. Yeah. And what's I, the perceived value of that? Yeah. Um, the, the idea of the difference between, well, I have this, um, pet peeve of people saying, showing me their sales funnel, their marketing funnel, you know, we do this, we send them this, we propose this, we do this, and saying, this is the customer's journey. No, it's your selling journey. Yeah. How, how do you know it's your customer's buying journey? What, what work have you done to find out? And uh, I, early on in my podcast, there was a, a fellow who actually he his his consulting is going out to big B two B clients 
and mapping their customer journey. Um, and one of the most memorable things he said was when you get a customer to recount all the steps they went through in their buying journey, half the time they don't even mention that they signed a deal. Because in the customer's mind, it was understand my situation, explore options, make sure things fit, confirm they fit, get the people involved, plan the implementation, double check the implementation. Yeah, we sent it to purchasing and they did some stuff. And then we like started the implementation. <laughs> and the magic, the magic black box where someone, you know, the, right? the value so, exchange, the money was so, exchanged for services. <laughs> yeah. So you, you imagine this split screen on the day that your big deal gets signed, right? And on the selling floor, there's a bell on the wall and it's getting <laughs> rung and people are cheering and there might even be confetti and there's lots of noise and smiling and hoot and hollering. And on the customer side, it's either nothing happened or somebody is saying, all right, man, I'm in it now. Now I'm finally accountable for achieving these results. I've just burned the ships. Yeah. And they've got a, a cold pit of dread in the pit of their Did stomach. Did I make the right choice? Right. So imagine that as a split screen, right? The moment we close the sale where we're hooting and hollering and the customer is just fear and you know fear and loathing in las vegas right i what do we do and to as you said to put yourself in the in the mind of your customer to realize that that's what's happening and now look at your funnel or your sales automation saying ooh is is this the way i'm selling to them or is it the way they're buying from me yeah well i think you make a really good point there mark and, and a lot of it's around this emotional journey that my customer takes and they're on this roller coaster, right? I mean, they justify it logically, obviously, you know, in terms of outcomes and stuff. But our customers ultimately on a, 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 an emotive, emotive journey from from where they are to, to where we want them to be or where they want to be particularly. Um, and I think the, the mistake that I see a lot of uh, marketers do is that when we design who our customer avatar is, we almost completely forget the emotive state. We might talk about, you know, frustrations and wants and, you know, desires and so on, as, as, and that's probably about the, the depth of the emotive state we get into. But we kind of only look at that at a single point in time. So we go, our avatar is named John. You know, John is 40 years old. He's the marketing director of a, you know, mid-size B2B firm, engineering firm, blah, 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 blah. You know, John reads Men's Health but doesn't really act on it and kind of wishes he did. He's got- Where's a tag hire watch and- Blah, 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 blah. Okay, we kind of do all this, you know, these, these demographic and, and psychographic sort of profiles of these people, but we forget that as John moves through our customer journey, that John's emotive state changes. He goes from, I know I've got a problem, so that awareness stage, he sees our ad and he's now curious, Right. Um, his motive state has changed, right? He's curious about what it is that we can do and whether the thing he's just seen will actually solve the problem that he's got, right? And then he gets hopeful, right? Different from curious. I'm now experiencing hope as he moves through that customer journey, right? As you said, when he buys, he's like worried. Yeah. And what emotion is he going through, Tim, when you're trying to sell him before he's ready to buy? <laughs> he's like, well, it depends. It depends if he's buying or I'm selling. 
right? But if we if we understand the emotive state of our customer, our ideal prospect, as they move through that customer journey, from a from a sales engineering and a marketing engineering perspective, we can manufacture that by putting the right content and the right experience in front of people as they go through it. And then they're more likely to do the next thing. Yeah. Do you have a different buying journey for an existing customer? Do you help your clients? Once a customer has bought from us the first time, they're, they're, you actually started a second buying journey, which is install this thing I just bought, uh, get good at using it, master it, start realizing I'm getting great results, and then figuring out what else I might be able to do with this vendor with this partner who helped me do something that's and then you actually enter what we traditionally called the sales funnel after that experience curve happens right and the people from your company that you dealt with that through that entire thing are engineers installers project managers customer service agents technical support and those people are actually feeding another customer buying journey do you work with clients on that repeat buying journey or that renewal or that upsell buying journey? Yeah, we do. And I think the thing is that the, the reason that doesn't happen consistency, consistently um, is that we kind of make it up as we go along. And for most companies, we're making up our sales life cycle as we go along, right? We think, oh, shit, I should call so-and-so today and I've forgotten that person and Surely they know I do these other things in my business that could also help them. But unless we build a system that does that, unless we have our you know, account manager or salesperson check in at 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, whatever the sales life, you know, appropriate sales life cycle is for you to go, hey, how's that going? You know, is that and 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 probing for those what's coming up for you right now? Oh, we've got this other problem now. Hey, we can solve that for you. Yeah, um, yeah. Unless we're kind of engineering the the system around our sales lifecycle and building that into our into our business process, um, we can't expect our salespeople or our account managers to do that consistently for our clients. I completely okay. agree, and yeah, that's I, why I, you get some great salespeople and others. And I had a a, a client down here in in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, a little while back, um, financial services firm. 50 odd brokers on the team, uh, you know, in the tens of millions in terms of revenue. Uh, and they have some training, which is great. And I, I asked Matt, uh, I won't share his last name just to protect the innocent. But I asked Matt and I said, well, do, do all of your salespeople get the same results? Because you've got this, you know, amazing sort of uh, team training that clearly makes robots that do exactly the same thing every single time. He's going, well, no, of course not. Right, some people are really good and they make more money, and others don't. About out of our brokers, I'm going. Well, what's the system you have in place to ensure that you're we're taking what the best brokers do in your business and building a system so that the worst brokers in your business do the same thing, get told what to do and when to do it. Oh, we don't have one of those. I go. Well, this is probably why we've got discrepancy in terms of what results we get. Yeah, but the more we the more we can systemize it, um, the more we can use you know automation and our CRM and and then the tools that we have available to to support our sales cycle and support our 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 value conversation 
the more likely it is we're going to get the same result every single time. Yeah, I my first big boy job was at a company where I learned um, where I had surgically embedded in my brain a set of value goggles. And I look at the world through a lens of value. And this company asked, everybody asked everybody else when we're talking anything about a customer situation, what's our value? And that question was a shorthand question in that culture. And that is, what is this company's business? How do they make money? How does our component, we sold them wire and cable. So our cable was a component in a bigger box. How does our cable impact their ability to make money with their box? What difference do we have and how much more money is that gonna help them make? How much more money? And of that, how much more money, how much of it do we deserve? Yeah. Right? That's a very sophisticated question. What's our value? Because you had to be able to articulate that whole thing. But here's the thing. Every single salesperson worldwide, 275 people worldwide, salespeople worldwide, every single one of them did that. Every the, And in the years since then, you know, when I started doing sales training for the world's largest sales training company, that's what the top five or 10% of your salespeople do. And so it, it, they had, they were the only company that I've ever seen that took that skill set, that elite skill set, and everybody was practicing it. And in that one, yeah, there was a, a system, but it was absolute accountability. In that company, you couldn't get anything done for a customer. You couldn't get a prototype. You couldn't get a draft drawing. You couldn't get anything unless as the seller, you could say, what's our value here? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's an interesting one, you know, the, the perception of value. And I think where it's a it's an important pivot that companies really need to make from the, you know, starting point where people, you know, generally start their business. They generally yeah. start with a cost plus margin kind of model, right? And hopefully that margin is enough to cover your management overhead and yeah. your staffing when you replace yourself and some profit for you and yeah. and all that sort of other stuff, you know. Um you know, so that's probably the first place people start. But there's this really important shift I think companies need to make where they go from from a pricing model and a positioning model from just a cost plus margin or a cost times X or whatever yeah. it happens to be to suddenly, you know, the perceived value. Um, I have another client um, in Sydney at the moment who's a, a watch manufacturer uh, and they're using a cost multiple, right? So they know what their watch costs. And they know what, you know, they know what they want to sell it for based on what other people are selling watches for, right? Without really any understanding what those margins are for other companies as well. And and one of the things that I've been challenging them to think about is like, why is that watch that value? You know, why is that priced that way? Try and understand from a customer's perspective, what's the difference between a Rolex and a Swatch or a Rolex and a Seiko watch, right? Um, other than perceived value, Okay. Yes, there's probably a little bit more engineering in your Rolex and your Patek and whatever else. Um, but ultimately, is it really worth, you know, I think 20 Rolex, times, you know, probably a Rolex might have a 30 or 40 or 50 X multiple on the, on the, on yeah. the revenue 
for the cost and a swatch might have a, a five times multiple but what's the difference other than perceived right and i think as a as a kind of interesting exercise to look at you know why are switch watches viewed the switch watch manufacturing industry has done an amazing job of um articulating the value or kind of manipulating the perceived value of swiss watches compared to japanese watches or chinese watches or yeah. or anything else as well right is there much difference? Does it when does it do the same thing? Yeah, <laughs> you look at your watch and it tells you the time. Yeah, I, right. I I, th I think that's super important, and so we insisted on having hundred percent of those salespeople understand the value. But the key was, it you just didn't survive in that company unless you got good at it. In 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 most companies, we say, oh, we expect that. Five to ten percent of our sellers are going to be the great ones, and we're going to live with the fact that the other 85 percent aren't. And at that company, they said, "No, here's here's what we expect. You're going to understand the value." Yeah. And and when that expectation was introduced, uh, and when the and everybody in the company held held everybody else accountable for knowing what the value was, so there was no place to hide. I think that's a, a good rule across the board. I mean, we, we talk about, I know on your other podcasts, you talk about excellence and, and mediocrity quite a bit. Um, but I think it's important to look at, you know, what are my top salespeople doing to articulate value and what process are they doing, right? Because that's a process, right? Articulation of value is just a process that we follow. Sure. You know, how do we take that process and how do we systemize that process and so that everybody in the same space can use it right it might be a checklist it might be a, a question it might be a mindset it might be a you know a, a process of follow-up yeah um, or it might be a process of positioning pre-sale that we do with our marketing machine um it's the same you know but we we can look at not only within our own company for excellence like that but we can also look at what other people are doing and reverse engineer how they position themselves and adopt those things into our own into our own companies. And that the fact that most people have such a low bar of success makes it very easy for us to do that and make our company stand out in terms of what we do and how we articulate that value to our customers. Yeah, you feel bad about those people, but it's sure job security for people like us. Yeah. <laughs> it's a low bar. <laughs> what a cynical way of looking at it, but there you have it. <laughs> Yeah, but it is. But again, the more we can, the more we can engineer that process of, of articulating that value, the more we can systemize it, the more likely we are to be able to get do that each and every single time, each and every single person who comes into our world. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, the the ability to turn it into a system, to insist on it, to make it just absolute accountability. Just you're not going to accept less. Um, there's, there's an amazing performance increase when you just won't accept any less. Yeah. And I think the comfort area is I, I happen to have been to a company, you know, worked at a company for almost a decade where those expectations were universal and everybody lived up to them. And what a gift to have, because I, I, you know, we, Alumni of that company, we get together and talk about what a gift it was to realize that 
the rest of the world that lives with the idea that, yeah, you're going to have good sellers and bad sellers. Um, that's a fallacy. I mean, yeah, you're always going to have people who sell better and worse, but if everybody lives up to that minimum, you have all good sellers. Then, then you don't have good sellers, bad sellers, and great sellers. You have good sellers and great sellers. Yeah. I think it's also important to look at, you know, I guess perceived value of the things that we buy, not just the things that we sell to our customers, but also the things that we buy. As well. ah. um, I've looked at, you know, a lot of clients that we speak to have gone, oh, I've got this CRM system uh, and it's super expensive. And I go, well, what are you spending per month on this CRM? And they go, I'm spending 120 bucks. And I've gone, okay. Why is it we can't find $120 worth of value out of using that thing? Because that's on you. It's not on the thing that you've purchased. In the same way that if you were going to buy a new pickup, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. And then leave it in the driveway and never drive it anywhere. Is that the manufacturer's problem or is that your problem for not using the thing that you've got in your business? Right. Because eventually it's like, rusty. All right. Yeah. The promise is it will take you on adventures. Right. You can pile all your camping gear in the back. You can take your family out into the, into the wilderness and you can have an amazing time and get back to nature and experience life but it's on you to use it as well. And I think as, as sellers, one of the things that we do a lot of is we basically transform our customer's business in some way. We make change. Yeah. Right. So we are agents of change. And if we don't look at that, it's not necessarily about the thing that we give them. It's about how it transforms their before state to their after state. What is the difference it makes? And that's how obviously we, how we articulate what that value is. Um, if I'm a, a leadership coach and I'm working with an organization uh, that is doing a billion dollars in revenue and we make a 1% improvement in productivity because we've got better leaders in that organization, well, that's $10 million in value that's been realized. You know, do I charge myself on a $200 hourly rate to generate that $10, you know, $10 million in additional revenue from that additional productivity improvement? You know, and we need to kind of, I think we need to sort of frame who it is we work with and what's the transformation we create in what it is we do, knowing that if we can deliver that transformation, deliver that change through the things we give to people, that's where the value is realized. Quite so, quite so. Well, Tim, what a great conversation. How do people get a hold of you and to learn more? Um, probably easiest hit us through the website, um, winmoreclients.com.au forward slash connect. Um, you can also find me uh, either through that page to my LinkedIn and Facebook profiles. Um, just reach out, happy to have a chat and see if there's, uh, you know, we can identify some gaps in your process where we can, you know, maybe create more value for your clients. Super. Well, Tim, thanks a lot for joining us. Great conversation. I could keep going, but let's get people off of their exercise machines. That's good. All right. Tim, thanks. Thanks again. And thanks everybody for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that sales, marketing, business is a lot more like brain surgery than you might have thought a moment ago. Thanks and have a high value day. 
Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.